Hey there, dog people of the internet. It's me, Sarah Strumming of The Cognitive Canine, and this is called Dog Radio, a podcast about all things dog sports and dog training. Join me as I explore my cases and considerations regarding the behavior of the dogs we live and play with. I hope you enjoy it. Hey guys, I'm doing a new program that I'm calling Wednesday Night Chats. This is a Facebook Live that'll be happening every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Pacific on my business page, which is on Facebook. It is facebook.com slash thecognitivecanine. I hope that you'll join me over there. We're going to be talking about basically all things what to do with dogs in a pandemic. How do we prepare our dogs for when our lives go back to normal? How do we socialize puppies right now? And... If we can't get out to do a decompression walk, what are we supposed to do? So join me over there. It's a free program, but I am accepting donations for it. All the details will be included each week. So that's facebook.com slash the cognitive canine Wednesday nights at 5 p.m. See you there. All right, we have a special treat for you guys today. I have a canine rehab case study about one of my own dogs. And since that's not my area of expertise, I, of course, have a special guest, Dr. Leslie Ide. Leslie, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. I'm excited to be here today. So we're talking about Iggy today, and Iggy is my 11-year-old Border Collie, and she's also perfect and the queen of the entire universe, and had a 10-year agility career, just injury-free, amazing, and then on January 5th, She got out of my car after a hike on three legs, and it was really devastating and traumatic for me. So I'm going to back up a little bit because that's not entirely where it started. Um, I actually did notice her stumbling in her rear legs when we started out on the hike. And Leslie was, of course, with me on the hike. And um, Leslie, remember I said, what's wrong? You know, I was kind of like in my panicky, oh my God, there's something wrong with the Jeep mode. And you were like, she's fine. Um, you didn't say she's fine, but you also looked and said, you know, we were okay to go on the hike. And so, and she actually walked out of it. So she normalized. Um, and it was just kind of, she just kind of was stepping wrong in the rear legs. I think a normal person wouldn't have noticed it, to be honest. Correct. I'm just not a normal person. I think most people wouldn't have noticed it. And I, I did kind of feel her over and there was nothing obvious And she was walking normally then, and it was a nice, easy walk. And Iggy's pretty calm on the walk, so I felt okay saying, okay, well, all we're going to do is a walk, so that shouldn't be too stressful on her body if she's tweaked something a little bit. Right. So then we got home, and I took her out of the car and put her on the ground, and her right front limb, she would not put down, and she was holding her head really low, and her whole body was hunched, and she just appeared to be in severe acute pain, um, and again, wouldn't walk on that front limb. And you kind of took over from there, because I didn't know what to do, and... um, we either needed to take her to the ER or you were going to, you know, treat her at home. And you decided to treat her at home. So do you want to take over and talk about kind of what you were seeing, what you did, and um, how that night went? Yeah, so Iggy definitely had a profound front limb lameness. Um... And she didn't want to move. She didn't really want to lift her head. But as for her pain level, I actually don't think it was the highest at that point. Like, she still seemed fairly comfortable. I... That's not how I remember it (laughs) at all. (laughs) So I'm going to stop you there. She was... She could not settle... She could not lie down. She could not normalize her neck. And I understand that other people, not me, veterinarians, see dogs in extreme pain in other situations. 
but the first night was to me the most painful that I've ever seen her in her entire life. She was definitely painful. I, in my kind of memory of how things went, I thought her pain got worse. So I thought in that moment of but when she got, was right after out of the car examining her at that point, I was like, okay, this so is we, something we can deal with. And then I think within like the three-ish days around that incident, her pain escalated and we had to do more to control her pain. Okay. I think we still disagree. Which is fine. <laughs> is um the first night was really, really severe. She couldn't move. She couldn't lay down. She couldn't get comfortable at all. I didn't see her like that again. I did see her change. I think that what we're talking about is I'm talking about the couple of hours after we got home being the worst part of the experience for me because I was watching her be in severe pain and couldn't do anything about it. Whereas I think maybe her overall discomfort, like you did need to escalate treatment over a few days, but um, it never got back to that bad. Okay. Um, so from there you examined her mm-hmm. and tell us what you decided to do. So Basically, at that point, I we gave her an anti-inflammatory, so kind of the benefits of having a drug cabinet at home. Um, I had lots of options, medication-wise, mm-hmm. to... Which is, that's essentially why we didn't take her to the ER. Yeah. Because you already have a pharmacy here. <laughs> so... An anti-inflammatory is always going to be my first choice if the dog can tolerate it. Um, and we knew from past experience that Iggy, at least on an as-needed basis, could tolerate an anti-inflammatory. Right. She can't tolerate it long-term, but she can for a few days. So I started with that, um, and then over time, we had to increase her drug regimen to drugs like gabapentin, codeine, methocarbamol, um, and then trazodone to, to help her relax a little bit. Um, so quite a multimodal approach to her pain, at least pharmaceutically. You know, that they all have different methods of actions. We've got our anti-inflammatory in there. We've got our um, nerve pain um, drug in there. We've got an opioid. We've got a muscle relaxer. And then we have an anti-anxiety because pain and anxiety go hand to hand just like they do in people. So we... You got to calm down to start to feel better. Yeah. I definitely know that firsthand. (laughs) So I think, you know, and that happened pretty quickly that we had to ramp up that drug protocol. And I think, I I think maybe that's why, you know, it took, I, I have this sense that it took a while for her to really show the pain because again, um, I, I think this is just evidence of like, even though I live in the house with her, she is Sarah's dog. And even though we see her probably fairly an equal amount. Sarah had a much better inclination of how she was feeling than even me. And so Sarah remembers her being in the most pain right away. And for me, it took a little bit to be like, oh yeah, she needs more. She's still painful. She needs more. She needs more. Sure. And I think it's important to note that there were no... um really outstanding findings other upon exam other than she didn't really want to move her neck so she had lost some she wouldn't let you mobilize her neck um but nothing else i mean like you went over her with a fine tooth comb and you do frequently go over her so you're really you are really familiar with her physically um 
but there wasn't a reason for us to like rush her in. Correct. Yeah. So she. So I think for people listening who do not live with the vets, (laughs) um, it's important to note that you were making choices with your veterinary brain the entire time, and a pet owner who has maybe has a closet full of drugs, um, maybe shouldn't go this route on their own. Completely agree. So for me, if we hadn't had any of those drugs in the house, we probably would have made a trip to my clinic. Mm -hmm. Again, I don't know that we would have gone to like an emergency vet, but that's only because I have access. Right. Um, But there is definitely a reason to go to the ER in this situation because you want to get the pain under control. Right. Had it been me by myself with Iggy, I absolutely would have taken her to the ER. So what did you find? So while Iggy was very lame on her front leg, I checked all the joints and there was nothing wrong with any joints, any muscles in the leg. So she could fully bend and flex all the joints, didn't care, let me do everything. But when I got to her neck and asked for some neck range of motion, she definitely was guarding her neck extremely. So didn't want to let it move at all. Um, And then even trying to get in and mobilize each vertebra, I couldn't. It was very stiff. It was there. She just was so tense in her neck. Um, I do feel like, and again, memory is a tricky little, little guy, but I feel like I remember kind of getting more discomfort as I got around her sixth cervical vertebra and that I actually got a little bit of a reaction when Mm. I palpated around there. Like she was saying, I don't like that. It's uncomfortable. Um, And then the rest was pretty typical for Iggy. So she always tends to have a bit of tension around her mid back, um, a little bit, um, you know, behind her shoulders and the muscles. But that's pretty typical. She's had that for years. It's been something that we've always kind of managed managed with, Mm -hmm. you know, just some body work, massage and fitness and never saw any problems with it neurologically she had no abnormalities so when i did all my neuro tests she was fully functional so so the biggest finding was really one of pain um and especially just guarding of her neck and in retrospect i've been able to say that leading up to this incident i saw her less and less willing to do some things in our obedience training. So she's retired from agility, but we are training for the open level of AKC obedience. And one of the things that I had lost was her sit at front if she was holding the dumbbell. So I had lost her sit at front if if she had the dumbbell specifically. And then her healing had just gotten a little bit wider and sloppier, and it's a heads-up heel. And... It, none of it was so severe that I went, oh my God, there's something wrong with her. But it's certainly, in retrospect, I go, oh, those were cues. Those were clues to me that something more was brewing under there. So I think that's really important to always look at your dog's performances at their baseline and go from there and kind of, you know, always pay attention to what is my dog's baseline? Is the baseline changing in any way? And can I have a professional on board that can just, you know, tell me if that baseline change is is a thing or is not a thing? And had I had you check her out, you may not have found anything anyway, or maybe some loss of mobility in the neck. Who knows? But because this injury had not occurred yet. But um, it's definitely something that I think about now looking back. It's one of those things where I I do try and educate people of like, you know, if you have a behavior that you feel is very solid, that your dog knows it forwards and backwards, and suddenly there's a change, 
it's always important to at least have a little bit like a, a dim light of of could this be a physical problem because there is that possibility that it could be a physical problem it's not just a training problem so that should always kind of be at the back of your mind if yeah. you're seeing it over and over with one of those um behaviors that you're just like I know my dog knows this you know what's funny if she had been if this had been a client dog I would have said that immediately I would have said the first session that there was a little bit of a wavering on that I would have said you know let's get that dog checked out by your sports medicine vet right but I because would've. it's you you I think naturally went to I'm doing something wrong I'm training yep. something wrong yep. I'm reinforcing How can I something shape this wrong better? Mm-hmm. for sure yeah Okay, so we went over her. So you started with a drug route, but then you went to some other therapies. So what did you do next? So for me, again, as I think back on this, and this is probably part of the reason why I also feel like her pain got worse. And maybe a better way to think of it is not that the pain got worse, but it wasn't being as controlled as I wanted it to be with the drug regimen. Um, And so at that point, I had pretty much put her on the full approach, multimodal approach to pain management with oral drugs. Um, So I had to look at other tools that I had. And that's where I went to acupuncture and then also a product called the Assisi Loop. Um, it took a little bit longer to get the Assisi loop because I did have to order it um, and purchase it um, for home use. Acupuncture we did pretty much the next day. The next day. And what you said about maybe it didn't get worse, but it didn't get better, so it bothered you more. Yeah. It, that's exactly how I remember it. It was the worst on that first night. There was some improvement with the drugs that you put her on. But my distress continued to grow because she did not improve. And yeah. I was like, this is, if, if this doesn't get better on this many drugs, what is going on? Right. And that's also where it's the vet's job to explain it takes time. Right. She kept telling me, you guys, she, <laughs> I would say, she's still not better. What are we going to, I mean, it was like, it was a very, very emotional time for me. And, um, you just kept saying you have to give drugs time. You just have to give drugs some time. And so you started the acupuncture the next day, Mm -hmm. potentially to appease me. And you kept doing it though, because we did see, did you, did you feel like you saw improvements? I, I liked it for her. And the fact, itchy is not highly tolerant of acupuncture she's not and she was tolerating it yeah and to me that was a sign that she was okay with it and potentially it was helping because she was like yes I will lay here and let you do this and not be grumpy about it Mm -hmm. and then the Assisi loop um, we got on board as soon as you had it And can you explain to them what the Assisi Loop is? So the Assisi Loop is Pulse Electromagnetic Field Therapy. Um, So it is not TENS or ultrasound or laser, but it is similar in that it uses an energy source to help um, increase metabolism, increase blood flow, um, decrease inflammation. And we know with the CC loop specifically that it affects the nitric oxide pathway in order to decrease inflammation. So it is labeled by the FDA as a non-pharmaceutical anti-inflammatory device. And so we were using it to um, basically try and pinpoint where I thought the inflammation was coming from, her neck, um, and use it on her neck right in the spot where the inflammation was to decrease the inflammation and therefore decrease the pain. So with all of this, we were able to get to a place where Iggy was basically acting herself, but she still had a front right limb lameness. She was not three-legged, 
but it was a significant enough lameness to upset me on a daily basis. Um, and for other people to notice too. So it wasn't just me being crazy because we went to right about the two week mark. We had clicker expo and we, I always take Iggy to clicker expo whenever I can. And so Iggy was there and like my friends see her limping around clicker expo and they can see that she's lame. So it's not just me. And we had all of this stuff on board. And I think it's important to note, as I just said, that, you know, I was walking her all over Clicker Expo, that you added activity back in slowly. So she was on some some restriction to begin with, and you added activity back in slowly. Can you talk about your process on adding the activity back in? Because I think a lot of people, if they take their dog to the vet and they're maybe not a rehab vet, the first thing they're going to hear is, you know, strict crate rest. Yeah. So for me, um, I have a, a saying, rest is not rehab. Um, and that's important to remember. There's actually no studies showing that strict rest or crate rest um, provides any benefit um, to healing. Where it comes from is basically looking at the physiology of healing and how long it takes for certain tissues to heal and saying, okay, let's not do any activity during that amount of time. But what's interesting is that in human studies, more and more we are looking at having some limited activity with restrictions, um, starting very soon after injury, after surgeries, and getting um, better results with healing. So going off that saying of, of rest is not rehab, we did start some easy activities with restrictions. So Iggy was restricted from jumping especially, um, but also any kind of explosive movement. Um, you know, we don't have stairs, so that wasn't a problem, but I wouldn't have had her going up and down a lot of stairs. Um, no roughhousing with other dogs. Again, not an issue with her, but there will be restrictions, but pretty much as soon as her pain was under control, we started doing leash walks. She was allowed to do one 10 minute leash walk a day with potty walks. Um, and that's where we started. And then again, as she was maintaining her pain level, like we weren't seeing spikes in pain, we weren't seeing breakthrough pain, we started a little bit of exercises. So I didn't do a lot to um, ask for any neck movement, but we did start working on some core strengthening and isometric strengthening. So I had her doing three-legged stands. We worked on her posture. Um, we did a bridge exercise. So just trying to get her to engage her core a little bit more um, so that one, we didn't lose strength, and hopefully by strengthening her core and her stabilizer muscles, we could also provide a bit of pain relief. Yeah, and, you know, you you gradually, basically we would test out the amount of exercise that you wanted me to try. We'd see how she did. If she didn't get worse, we'd add a little bit more. Not that we we're trying to make her worse, but you were trying to gradually put... Um, activity back into her life. She was doing about a 90 minute to two hour walk in the woods off leash every single day before this. So restricting her to a 10 minute leash walk was a lot, but really quickly you had me doing two 10 minute leash walks and then two 15 minute leash walks and then two 30 minute leash walks. Um, and then when she could tolerate two 30 minute leash walks, um, you pretty much had me go ahead and take her on an hour walk and, um, all of that was fine, but she was still laying in the front. And so when Clicker Expo wrapped, I said, okay, I shut up about this the entire weekend, but she is still lame. So what is my next move? At which point I took her to see a neurologist because that's what you said Yep, <laughs> to do. I said, yeah, basically everything... 
that I can do has been done. Um, and I thought, you know, she was actually really good. And most, again, pet people would probably have been satisfied with right. where she was at because she was comfortable. Right. At a walk, she was not lame. At That's a trot, true. she was. And That's often true. the trot would wax and wane. So she definitely could do some trotting where that would look pretty normal. But more often than not, the trot was where there was this obvious lameness. Mm-hmm. So we took her to the neurologist. Um, and I want to say, we're going to kind of reveal what the injury was <laughs> in a minute here. But um, you you called it. Like, you, you. the reason you sent me to the neurologist is because you had a pretty decent hunch as to what was going on. Um, so we went to neuro. We actually, I actually wound up seeing a neuro resident who, um, because that's who I could see the soonest and that's not a big deal. So we went, um, she had a full neuro workup and then they, and like you said, a lot of people would be satisfied with where she was at. And so in the neurologist, you know, waiting room, you've got, you know, Frenchies that are paralyzed from the waist down (laughs) and you've got... You know, dog seizuring. A dog that's seizing. And you've got, and so then I've got my dog who walked in and has a, has a lameness that I can perceive, but not everybody can. <laughs> and so I'm that crazy person. And luckily they knew you, so they were nice to me. <laughs> but, you know, they said from here, they, they gave her a full neuro- neurological exam. Again, no neurosymptoms because she never had neurosymptoms, really. Um, and they said... And your pain was well under control Her pain was under control at that time. And so they said, you know, your next move is an MRI. Good. I'm, I may be forgetting well, something. Well, I, I think they wanted it to be orthopedic. Oh, I'm sorry. I forgot. They actually didn't say the MRI. They said, you need to go see an orthopedist. Because there's something orthopedic wrong with her. That is 100% what they said. Because there were no neurological findings. And we happen to know a couple of those. So she had a full orthopedic workup. She had a full physical exam by an orthopedist. As well as every x-ray that exists. I mean, literally, like, x-rayed her head to toe. And so we had to bring all of that data to the neuro team that cleared her. Mm-hmm. I mean, the the orthopedist cleared her. Um, and this is kind of your experience. Like, a lot of times, neuro bounces it back to orthopedist, and then orth- orthopedics bounce it back to neuro, and, and, you know, sometimes the rehab person is stuck in between. Like, this is, this is just kind of how this works, and that's okay. But when the neurologist says there's no neurological symptoms, but you have a lameness, it makes sense for them to say it must be orthopedic. So, do you want to talk about any for orthopedic findings? Yeah, so interesting, of course, just to throw a wrench in things, you know, she did have some slight discomfort on both shoulders um, in the exam. In her orthopedic exam. Which for an 11-year-old dog who had a career of agility, you know, it's really not that abnormal of a finding to be, to say, oh yeah, she kind of was a little uncomfortable with the end range stretch. Um, you know, her range of motion was completely normal. There there was nothing else found. But I will say, the orthopedist, when I said she was 11, her jaw hit the floor. So this person, because we kind of snuck in through the back door. This wasn't an appointment. Um, and the doctor was like, oh, my God, I thought she was like seven. Yeah. Because that's how good a shape she's actually in. So maybe had she been aware of her age when she was examining her, I mean, I, she still would have pointed out the shoulder discomfort, but it maybe wouldn't have been a thing the way that it was. But anyway, um, go ahead. Yeah, so her radiographs were spotless. I mean, no signs of arthritis, you yeah. know, nothing. Um, her blood work was great. 
Um, so then we ended we up decided, back at the neurologist. We decided to proceed with the MRI. So when we sent all of that back to them, they said, okay, well, your next move is an MRI. And they wanted to do everything. They wanted to look at shoulders. They wanted, you know, because of that orthopedic finding, they wanted to MRI the shoulders as well. And I basically said, you know, if you're going to anesthetize her, look at everything. <laughs> like, don't. Do not cut corners. Do not mess around. If you're going to anesthetize her, look at everything. So she wound up actually being under this. Like, her MRI took over three hours to complete. Yeah. So I think that's important to remember. MRIs are not this quick, easy thing. Like, even doing the entire spine is time-consuming and takes multiple passes. So... With Iggy doing the entire spine, I mean, we did cervical down to sacrum, and then also doing the shoulders. It was a good was four hours. hour yeah. Um, scan. Yeah, and I, you know, having had MRIs myself, yeah, it takes way longer than you would think it's gonna take, um, and that's with a person who can, you know move themselves, listen to you, and do what you're telling them to do, versus the dog is anesthetized, so you've got to. Open the machine, go in, get the text in, move the dog, leave, do it again. I mean, it's actually amazing that they got it done in four hours. So all of that happened. I got her back. It was the most traumatic day of my life. I'm on, That's only a little bit of hyperbole um, to leave her there to get her MRI. And then um, they called and said, she looks pretty good. And actually, the shoulder that had the most... Um, effusion is the word that they were using, was the shoulder she was not lame on. It was the left. And that's actually good news because had it been the right shoulder, that team for sure would have been like, well, it's this. it definitely is orthopedic. Um, so we're glad it was the left shoulder that looked worse. Still, though, her shoulders are pretty good. Well, what's interesting is there's definitely some... Um, not controversy, but I mean, we're still figuring things out with kind of these, these injuries, these soft tissue things in, in our sports dogs as we get more and more these kind of in tuned with them. Sure. And there's definitely some indication that some effusion, which is a medical word for swelling in the shoulder joints and around the biceps tendon is potentially normal. Um, We're Uh, seeing it more and more in scans because we're doing these MRIs of shoulders and we're doing ultrasounds of the shoulders. And more and more, like Iggy, we're finding that often we find effusion on the non-symptomatic shoulder. So it's a little bit of an unknown of what it indicates. So again, it was good that it happened on the non-symptomatic shoulder so that we didn't throw that kind of confusion into the picture. Yeah, for sure. And one other um, finding was that she did have lumbosacral disease at, um, I don't remember, I think it was L4 and L5. Well, if it was lumbosacral, then it would have to be L5-S1. Oh, whatever. (laughs) Yep, I don't know the numbers. So Lumbosacral um, means the lumbosacral junction, doesn't it? Yeah. Sarah's getting her doctorate right now. um, Yeah, so that specifically is L7-S1. And I, but I, I feel as, it was fairly mild. Oh, gosh, they said... It's there, but it's literally nothing. Like, they were like, there is some mild, you know, LS disease, but um, they didn't think it was a big deal. You don't think it's a big deal. Like, it's not a big deal. Yeah. It was unlikely to be the rear limb lameness that I saw in the beginning. You're saying that the rear limb lameness was probably related to the actual injury that we're talking about. Yeah. So that was the report from the neurologist but the MRI did get sent to a radiologist and and so basically for two weeks while we waited for that report we were in the twilight zone of like why did this happen because the neurologist didn't have an answer from the MRI correct um we were kind of like well that's weird what could this But I do think that you were hanging on to that waiting for the radiologist report because you still had a strong hunch about what it was. Yeah. (laughs) Always. 
Um, and so it was literally two weeks before we heard back um, about the radiologist's report. And it turns out, do you want to tell them what they found? <laughs> well, she had, she did have a bulging cervical disc to... When they said um, a partial rupture yeah, of the disc. To the right side, which is why the symptoms were down the right leg. Correct. So, um, yeah, basically it was what we thought exactly from the beginning. exactly what you thought from the beginning. And... I think, you know, are you always going to be able to make that kind of call? Like, and you couldn't make a diagnostic call. You were speculating and you were treating it based on your best assumption, based on your examination of her. Well, and here's the thing, too, which I think is important to remember. This happened very quickly and was like the perfect timing the whole way through. I really think if it had been a dog that I first saw after Clicker Expo, I may not yes. have jumped to the like, oh, this is which a cervical is, Which disc. is when the neurologist saw her, you guys. So we waited, we, you know, because we treated her conservatively for two weeks before she went to the neuro. And she went to neuro because I still was not satisfied with the level of lameness that I was seeing because, like I said, she's the queen of the universe. Also, she's not done. She might be 11, but she has a lot of things to do left in this world. And I was devastated at the prospect that she couldn't do obedience with me or couldn't keep hiking every day. I mean, like, I'm literally going to cry. It was, the prospect was devastating to me that she would have to, like, be a quote-unquote old dog now. Like, I was not accepting that. So, that's why she went to Neuro. We got the diagnosis, didn't change the treatment plan, but she has continued to improve and get better. Do you want to talk about some of the exercises that she's doing now? Well, we continue to progress what we started with. So a lot of core exercises um, as her symptoms seem to go away and because of that could make the assumption that her pain was also decreasing. We started to take her off of medication slowly. Mm-hmm. Um, and then doing a bit more flexibility type exercises, um, you know, asking her to move her head around. Um, we started to reintroduce some obedience exercises. Um, and then from that really built the rehab therapeutic exercise plan um, based on the things that she needs to be able to do for obedience and um, the things that still seem to give her a little bit of a struggle like that she she showed some weakness and I think the biggest one is still sitting Mm -hmm. so she is hesitant to get into a sit position um, and even maybe a little hesitant to hold a sit position. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we've been working a lot on easier sitting exercises to help build that strength up. Um, also continuing to just do a lot of core work. It's really interesting to me, um, when I watch her do the exercises and knowing what she could do, um, in the past, how, um, her core was affected more than anything, mm-hmm. I would say. Um, you know, she just kind of struggles a little bit to hold positions solidly when in there's instability. Sure, and I would say that it's worth noting, too, that she is 11, and when she was 8 years old, she was spayed, and there was a pretty drastic loss in core strength after that surgery. And so we, I built that back up to a level that she could go back to competing in agility for another couple of years. But um, she was never back to pre-spay core strength. And then when I retired her from agility, I think she went back down to more like right after spay level Mm -hmm. um, because I hadn't kept up on the exercises like I should have. And so now I see her getting stronger and stronger. We're religiously doing our exercises. 
Today she hiked for five miles. With the humans went five miles, so she probably went, you know, maybe not, not as much as the other dogs. Yeah. <laughs> probably. Just, and you guys, that's always been her. She's never been a sprint down the trail type. Um, and she does obedience. We sits are a thing, but we've got some specific conditioning exercises now for working on that. But the dumbbell is not a problem anymore. So that she isn't more hesitant to sit with the dumbbell in her mouth than she was before. Um, and yeah, I overall, you would have no idea looking at her that anything like this happened. So I think she, we can count her as this huge success um, of rehab because she didn't have anything other than rehab treatment. She, I, she didn't. She didn't have surgery. And actually, the neurologist reviewed the radiologist report, called me, said she's really not a surgical candidate, which I'm really happy about because if they had said she was, then I would have had this huge decision to make because she was improving and getting better. Leslie would have probably put the kibosh on that if I had even brought it up because she was getting better with conservative treatment. 100%. I would have been the advocate (laughs) not to go to surgery. Yeah. Um, Not always the case, but in this case, for sure. I'd also like to point out that, you know, she's off all medications. Um, She is back on her regular supplement regime, which she's always been on with fish oil and a glucosamine. So Mm -hmm. that's no no difference than before. Um, And I, uh, other treatments like acupuncture and the CC loop, we really haven't had to use, like, I haven't used acupuncture at all. You know, occasionally if I'm like, eh, she looks maybe a little sore or Sarah reports something to me, then I'm like, let's just do an Assisi loop treatment. It's yeah. something easy to do at home. Um, and, j- you know, it's not, you know, we always say first do no harm. I have no worries that even if nothing is wrong, that doing an CC loop is going to cause a problem. It's only going to help. Yeah, and so it is late April um, at the time of the recording, and this was, the injury was January 5th of this year. So we're looking at over four months ago, and she looks fantastic. But it did take that long. I would say that, She's been 100%. I, I mean, what's 100%? But I would say that we did the CC loop pretty religiously for about two straight months every day. And then you did acupuncture intermittently for that entire time as well. And she was on medication. Um, we actually, You actually took her off the meds fairly quickly because you're kind of of the mind that, you know, if we start to take her off the meds and we do see a change, we can always put her back on. But we never had to. You tapered her down on everything. And I think the last thing we took her off of was gabapentin, which is something that I will use for her for anxiety purposes anyway. So it's not like it's a, it's not like it's a drug that's different for her. I mean, we're starting to, we'll get into fireworks season here soon and she'll have to go back on it Um, anyway. So it's, you know, it's a fairly harmless drug to be using versus like um the NSAID she actually did start to develop some GI symptoms after about the second week on it so we needed to get her off of that but um you know it's it's one of those things where if I hadn't had you on her team I would have been pretty lost and not sure what to do and so I guess the reason that I wanted to record this and share this story with everybody is so that people understand what a professional like yourself could bring to their sport dog life. And the fact that you already knew her and were so familiar with everything about her because you'd been, you know, essentially doing sports physicals on her, her whole, not her entire career, but for a while. Um, It's just important to have that kind of person on your dog's team. I think a lot of sport people feel like it's good enough to have maybe a massage therapist on their dog's team, which my dogs also have on their team, and that's really, really important. Um, But 
or maybe they only have a chiropractor or maybe they only have their general practice vet or, you know, and I'm not saying that these people aren't important too, but there's something different that a sports medicine vet actually brings to the table. And especially one that understands the sport that you're playing because you don't do obedience, but you get it and you understand the actions that she needs to do. And so that was important for us too. So I think to wrap up, Leslie, what I would like is for you to tell everybody what you have coming up, what you offer currently, um, and where they can find you. Cool. So things have been changing a little bit, probably for everyone. Um, But as of this recording, I'm no longer with the clinic in Seattle due to the global pandemic. Um, But I have expanded my services online um, through the totalcanine.net. It includes telemedicine video consults and multiple options for online coaching of rehab treatments and fitness exercises. So you can check out all those options on either my website, which is the totalcanine.net, or on my Facebook page, which if you search for The Total Canine should come up. Um, I do have quite a few online um, classes and um, purchases available right now. Um, So I have on Fenzy Dog Sports Academy, the class Beyond the Peanut, Cavaletti's for Fitness is going to be a June term class. So that means registration is in May. And then I also have Treadmill Tactics Workshop on May 10th. And registration is currently open for that. So check that one out on Fenzy Dog Sports Academy. Um, I did a series of weekly webinars um, not that long ago, and they are still available for purchase. So while the live webinar is over, you can purchase a recording of the webinars. Um, There's four really great ones with diverse topics, so you can find those on my website as well. Um, And then I still have the free group the 14-day canine fitness challenge, which is great for anyone to join. Um, It's free. It gives you um, 14 plus days of exercises that you can do with your dog in a small amount of space without um, needing a lot of equipment. I've had a really good time with the 14-day fitness challenge. (laughs) Felix has a good time doing all the challenges. And all of the exercises that Iggy is doing are built in the foundations that are in the challenge. So, and I will of course be sharing some videos of Iggy's exercises over on Patreon. So I hope that you guys will join us there. And I will certainly link everything that Leslie just mentioned in the show notes for you. So thank you so much, Leslie, for going through this with me. And thanks you guys for listening. Thanks. All right, I've got some Patreon questions for you guys. The first one comes from S.I. Winkler. S.I. says, I think many of us are relying on our dogs these days for emotional support. We're getting a lot of time with them. We're doing more training at home. All of our routines are upended. Getting out with them anywhere is an increasing issue. What can we do both now and in the future to not take their resilience for granted and keep them emotionally healthy for our sake as well as theirs? especially when many of us really can't get outside for much these days, both as we go through this and as we hopefully try to return to normal at some time in the future. You know, this is an important thought, and um, there's actually some recent research indicating that dogs are essentially empaths, that they kind of feel what we are feeling. And that's probably why they're so amazing. But man, it kind of breaks my heart because as a person who routinely struggles with depression and anxiety, it makes me really sad to think that it's possible that my dogs are feeling the way that I'm feeling um, at times. And so I think what's important is to just try to be sure, number one, that you take care of yourself as a person and don't 100% rely on your dog to be your emotional support. 
um, reach out. You know, there's great therapy options. Online therapy is the new wave anyway. And I know that my therapist is working online. Um, but also provide that enrichment and provide as much decompression as you can, even if you can't get out. I am doing chats about this on my The Cognitive Canine business page on Facebook on Wednesday nights. So these Wednesday night chats are just free Facebook lives where I'm talking about different issues to do with dogs in the pandemic every single week. And I hope that you'll check that out because I've gone through how to provide enrichment and decompression um, to our dogs during this time over there. Next one comes from Elisa. I'm getting a new puppy in a couple weeks, so long as the government lets me drive out of state to pick them up. And this is a little bit of an old question, and I know Elisa did get her puppy. Um, At what point do you introduce concepts like consent and start buttons with a young puppy? I've only developed those things with an adult dog, so I'm not sure when you add that in with a brand new pup. As far as the actual trained start button behavior goes... I don't teach that until the dog actually knows something about work. But as far as consent goes, that's woven into all of my training practices from day one. So anytime I'm training, I'm allowing the dog the opportunity to opt in to training, and I'm allowing the dog the opportunity to opt out if he chooses, and I'm watching for those subtle signs of opt out. So if I'm doing a shaping project, for instance, I might reinforce with some food away from the working zone and allow the puppy to choose to return to the working zone, and that's how I get it going from the beginning. And Leah had a question building off of Elisa's question. And they say, at what point do you start making toy play more structured and introducing rules surrounding toys? I'm struggling with when to introduce things like outs, hands up for more play, hands down for offer drops, markers, and stimulus control. I do not want to overwhelm my tiny 12-week-old with too many rules and potentially destroy the lovely natural toy drive she already possesses. Leah, you're smart to be a little bit concerned about that because a lot of people do um, wreck really nice toy drive by trying to put too many rules on it in the beginning. So I do not add rules to my toy play until my puppies are really, really into toy play. And that tends to be when they're around six months of age because they tend to go off toys for a minute while they're teething because it's painful and then they come back. Um, So when they're really, really into tugging and they will offer behaviors for the for the toy, for me to provide the toy, I start to put some of those parameters on it. I'm smart about it from the beginning. I'm always watching what behaviors I want to be reinforcing and what behaviors I don't, but I don't work super hard on any of those cues until the dog's really, really into toys. This one comes from Aaron. I'd love to hear some ideas for puppies while we're all quarantined. I'm petrified my boy is going to be poorly socialized due to this. Cheap and easy enrichment ideas would also be greatly appreciated. So Aaron, I'm going to plug Wednesday night chats again. Um, that's over on the Cognitive Canine business page on Facebook. And I will link to that in the show notes because I talked about this at length over there. Generally speaking, you guys, these puppies are going to be okay. Take them out on your essential errands. Make sure that they are able to observe the world around them. They need to observe the world more than they need to interact with it anyway. And you're really going to be just fine. So get your puppy out. Make sure you're doing kind of puppy guided socialization, which means that if the puppy is afraid of something, you get far enough away and allow the puppy to observe it until they get curious and then you allow them to get a little closer. If the puppy is kind of obsessed with people and wants to pull over to people, great. It's a perfect time for those puppies to learn that not everybody's here for them. Um, and I would certainly get involved with, you know, some of your friends puppy appropriate adult dogs, maybe you can go and have a socialization session with your puppy um, in your friend's backyard while you and your friend don't have any contact. I also know somebody who, uh, one of my friends has a puppy right now and she sent her puppy to have a sleepover at a friend's house. They did a no contact puppy exchange and the puppy had a sleepover and had a great socialization experience with her friend's children and dogs. So think outside the box these puppies are going to be all right. All right, Amanda, I was thinking that spay-neuter surgery will be considered elective. 
Please can you help us as dog owners and as dog trainers trying to help our clients through the cultural fog of sterilization, fixing or preventing behavior problems and how to navigate the world with an intact dog. So I recently heard um, heard this explained best from Dr. Chris Pockle, who is a veterinary behaviorist in Portland, Oregon. And he said, you know, that you can find any research on spay neuter to support your current beliefs on spay neuter. So if you believe that spay neuter is good for behavior, you can find that data. And if you believe spay neuter is bad for behavior, you can find that data too. And the same thing goes for health. We simply do not know very much. I also consider spay and neuter elective. Um, and, you know, generally speaking, it is elective until you have something like a disease process happening that makes you need to remove those organs. Um, and I like to keep my animals intact as long as I can. What I think it's important for people to consider is whether or not this behavior problem seems to be fueled by um, sex hormones or not. And if not, it isn't going to be fixed by removing those hormones. However, I this is not the hill I choose to die on. If people are uncomfortable having an animal that is intact, I am not going to stand in their way of their spay-neuter surgery. Um, I know that elective surgeries for humans are starting back up um, where I live pretty soon, and they will be starting back up for uh, veterinarians as well. So as far as that cultural fog goes, it's important to, rather than try to fix people's way of thinking on this, present them with facts. So present them with as much information as you can and allow them to make their own choice from there. And I think that's really important. And I also think it's important for you to not stress about a person making that choice for their dog. It really is okay and it's their choice. Aaron says, any advice on addressing distress while driving? Is it essentially using happy creating crate training protocols to teach relaxation? Should all driving stop until we can address it? Um, for us, that would be 20 to 35 minute trips to and from decompression walk locations. Oh man, and I hate that... Um, I hate that the dog would lose out on the decompression to stop driving. Um, but basically... Most of the time when dogs are distressed about the car, that starts from some kind of motion sickness or discomfort kind of standpoint. So the first thing I would do is make sure that nausea is not the culprit. And I would go, I would talk to the vet about getting some anti-nausea meds on board for the dog. Um, if you've already tried like Dramamine or Benadryl, talk to them about some actual anti-nausea meds because they have better stuff than that. And um, that's a really important place to begin. From there, I would also be talking to the veterinarian about some anti-anxiety meds so that you can help the dog get through this because a lot of the time they just need to experience being in the car without being nauseated and also without being anxious because they don't know that they can be in the car without having those feelings. And as you can imagine, it's just kind of this vicious cycle. They expect to feel yucky and so they do not want to get in the car. Let's see. Katie asks, any suggestions for those of us that do not have access to areas to consistently walk our dogs off leash? What are some alternatives to allow our dogs to decompress? So Katie, again, Wednesday night chats. Um, I did talk about this a little bit, but generally speaking, most of us have more options than we think we do. And so I would encourage you to explore. I would encourage you to explore the Sniff Spot app and see if there aren't any um, sniff spot areas nearby. And get out good old long line and harness and go zigzag some soccer fields or open fields and things like that. See if you can't find somebody that's got property that will allow you to use the property. It is important enough to me that I will drive long distances and have awkward conversations with neighbors and pay the sniff spot app because it is actually vital to my dogs. So I would say continue to reach outside of what you think you have and see what you can find. All right, that's it for this week. Thanks all of my patrons for your great questions. 
listening, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe in the podcast app of your choice. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, being a part of the CogDoc Radio community, and getting access to all kinds of extras, head over to patreon.com slash CogDogRadio to become a patron. 